Enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. It's been a long, weird month of September, and I just moved into a new place yesterday, so this one's going to be short. I'm hoping to get back on that research grind, but who knows what life's going to throw at me next. (laughs) I'm happy to be bringing you this particular episode, courtesy of my co-workers and our Monday morning meeting conversations. So we share our weekend adventures on Mondays, and one woman went out to the beach, which I'm jealous of, and she watched a moonset. This kicked off a massive conversation with full-grown adults who have higher degrees about whether the moon sets in the West all of the time. It does. It always sets in the West. It's very unusual for satellites to, from the perspective of the planet that they're orbiting, rise in the West and set in the East, unless it's Judgment Day. (laughs) The Norse-named moons of Saturn are the only moons I think I've talked about that orbit from West to East. Venus is the only planet that spins in a retrograde motion, meaning that if it had any satellites orbiting it in the normal prograde way, they would look like they were moving across the sky from west to east. But Venus doesn't have any satellites, and on Earth, our moon orbits east to west. So, on Earth, it looks like the sun, moon, planets, any comets, and the stars all rise in the east and set in the west. The conversation at work then turned to how you know when moonrise is. Phones came out, but the weather app only tells you when the sun rises and sets. At least, the basic one does. And they know I podcast about space, so they started asking, not in any direct way, not like they expected me to answer, if I knew why the moon is sometimes not in the sky. I did know, but I couldn't articulate it. I'm not very articulate in the face of other people, especially when it's about facts, and not just me talking about an opinion I have. I can talk fluff pretty authoritatively, but that's about it. (laughs) So, this is my answer to them, if they happen to find it. What the heck is up with orbits? And this is also because none of you listeners out there have voiced an opinion about what I should talk about. I'll get around to it all eventually, I hope, but until I have the time, energy, and inclination to follow up on my research plans, and without the push of someone else wanting to hear about a particular area of astronomy or space research or physics or something, I'll go where I please. For this podcast, it's orbits. Everything orbits. I talked a little bit about it in the second episode of this podcast, because the ideas scientists came up with to explain why things in space were moving were really bizarre before the theory of gravity emerged. Gravity is still bizarre, but it works mathematically, and Einstein's conception of gravity, that it's a warping of space-time caused by extreme mass, that makes it work even better. Those crystalline spheres and the vortices theories, they were extremely odd and also bad theories. But still, everything is orbiting. The moon orbits the earth. The earth orbits the sun. 
the sun orbits the center of our galaxy, where there's a supermassive black hole. I don't know if they have been attempting to figure out if our galaxy is orbiting anything, but that would be extremely hard to determine if we were attempting to measure that. We can just stick with our solar system when we're talking about orbits. So, planets circle our sun in elliptical shapes. They're usually pulled out of whack by each other sometimes, but we won't get into that. Um, The time it takes a planet to circle 360 degrees around the sun is counted as that planet's orbital period. And on Earth, we call that a year. It's a little over 365 days in an Earth year. That's why we have a leap year every four years, because Earth technically takes 365.25 days to orbit the sun. Mercury takes 88 Earth days to orbit the sun. Venus takes 224.7 Earth days. Mars takes 687 Earth days. And when we start getting out to the outer planets, it takes Jupiter 4,333 Earth days, which is almost 12 Earth years to orbit the sun. I'm using Earth days because planets also spin on their axes, and that creates the duration of a day. An Earth day is 24 hours. The sun is up for longer in the summer than in the winter, but it takes 24 hours, and we decided this, and we're sticking with it as a society. I talked about this more in episode 7 on measuring mechanisms, if you want to hear more about the different systems of categorizing time using the sun and moon. Other planets, though, they may spin faster or slower than Earth. Mercury spins really slowly, so a day on Mercury is technically 168 Earth days long, or 4,032 hours. That means a day on Mercury is almost two Mercurian years long. In contrast, Jupiter spins so fast that a day on Jupiter is only 10 Earth hours, and Saturn days are 10 Earth hours and 40 minutes long. This is all Earth relative. I'm going to move and talk about everything about the Sun and Moon's orbits from an Earth relative perspective, just because you will be able to observe it yourself if you want to consider the practical aspect of this podcast. So even though Earth is orbiting the Sun... The sun is what appears to be moving across the sky. The sun follows the same path every year, though the angle of the sun changes as the year proceeds from solstice to equinox to solstice to equinox. If you'll recall, there's a summer solstice, an autumnal equinox, which uh, actually just happened recently, then a winter solstice, and a vernal equinox. Those are the four seasons, too. Summer, fall, winter, and spring. In the northern hemisphere, the sun is highest in the sky in summer and closest to the horizon in winter, and it's in the middle of its path at the autumnal and vernal equinoxes. This all maps out a wide band of the sky, which is called the sun's ecliptic. I mentioned this again in episode 7 when I talked about armillary spheres. This band of the sky is also where the constellations of the zodiac appear. As the sun moves higher or lower in the sky over the course of a year, you'll also notice the sun rising and setting at different times. Earlier, I used to be waking up and the sun would be up, but nowadays I'm awake before sunrise. That's only going to get worse as we approach the winter solstice at the end of December, when it's the shortest day of the year. After the winter solstice, it'll turn around and the days will slowly start getting longer. This is because of the path that the sun takes across the sky. The Earth's axis is tilted, 
So the sun's path across the sky in the winter keeps the sun below the horizon for longer and longer amounts of time. I should clarify that this is in the northern hemisphere, that the days get shorter in winter. In the southern hemisphere, winter is the warm season, and the days are longer. This is because the Earth's axis tilts the northern hemisphere away from the sun at certain times of year, the winter, and the southern hemisphere is then tilted toward the sun. The opposite happens in the seasons we have designated as summer. The Earth's northern hemisphere is tipped toward the sun and the days are longer, while the Earth's southern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun and the days are shorter. The moon is still out there orbiting us. The path of the moon's orbit is tilted about 5 degrees when compared to the path that Earth's orbit takes around the sun. It takes 27.3 days for the moon to orbit Earth completely. While it's orbiting Earth, though, Earth is spinning around in these 24-hour periods we call days, so the moon appears to rise and set an hour later every day, which you can also think of as it appears to slide back about 13 degrees every day. Sometimes the moon will be so close to the sun that we never see it from Earth. Most times, it's far enough away from the sun that we can see it, even in the daytime. The moon goes through visible changes throughout a lunar month. There's a new moon, when the moon appears to be completely dark. You can see the dark disk in the sky if you look carefully, but odds are it's close to the sun at these times, so you'll have to look near the western horizon after sunset to see it. It'll then become a waxing crescent, which means the shape of the moon gets larger and larger until it reaches the half-moon point. Then it's waxing gibbous, getting fuller and brighter until it's a completely full moon. At that point, the moon will be in opposition, where it's on the opposite part of the sky from the sun. You'll see a full moon or a pretty full gibbous moon all night if you want to check. After it's full for a couple days, it will start waning into a gibbous moon again, and then to a half moon, then waning crescent, all the while getting closer to the sun until it becomes a new moon again and is completely dark. The apparent shape of the glowing moon is directly related to how close it is to the sun. You know the Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon? It's also a line in a song from Mulan, but it's referring to a true thing. The moon doesn't spin on its axis. One single face of the moon is facing Earth at all times. This is because of tidal forces, which affect every moon in our solar system, and mean that the same face of the moon is pointed towards the planet that it orbits. The term tidal forces in astronomy refers to the effect of a massive body gravitationally affecting another massive body. The way the moon affects the Earth's tides is by causing two high tides per day as the moon pulls the water towards it on one side of the Earth, and it pulls the Earth away from the water on the other side of the Earth. This is kind of a weird idea, but it's a visible effect, tides. Tidal forces are also responsible for the way that planets form with a bulgy middle section. And my quest for more information about tidal forces brought me to the word spaghettification which is a real scientific word that NASA has used to describe extreme tidal forces where an object would be pulled apart as the bulgy middle effect became extreme enough to cause the body to elongate into, I guess, spaghetti. <laughs> this is barely relevant to orbits, but I had to share. Knowing that physicists use the word spaghettification to describe what a black hole would do to matter is an incredible fact to know, and I needed to share it with you. <laughs> To get back to my point about the moon, tidal forces ensure that we get to see the same craters every night from the surface of Earth, and that's not going to change. What does change is what face of the moon the sun is shining on. As the moon travels around Earth, with one side always facing us, the sun will hit different sides of the moon. 
During a new moon, the sun's light is completely hitting the other side of the moon that we can't see from Earth. It's lighting the dark side of the moon, the side that we never see. From Earth, this makes it look like the moon is changing shape. Really, it's just the angle that the sun is shining on the moon that's changing. This means that solar eclipses only happen during a new moon, when the moon is closest to the sun. Lunar eclipses happen during a full moon, when the Earth passes between the sun and moon because they are in opposite points of the sky. Fred Espinak, who I mentioned when I did episode 9 about eclipses, he also put together some cool composite images of the moon's phases so you can see what waxing and waning lunar phases look like. That's all up on the website. The lunar months affect a lot of different religious, social, spiritual, and just regular day-to-day calendars. They're a major part of almanacs because it's an important way of tracking time. And what's kind of fun is the names that certain moons have. I'm sure it varies by culture and region, but I found a list of northern and southern hemisphere full moons that have different names based on the season. There's a link to those lists on the website, which is, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. But the most common thing you've probably heard is the phrase, once in a blue moon. In more recent times, blue moon refers to when you get two full moons in one calendar month. An older definition is that a blue moon is the third of four full moons in a single season, since you get three full moons in each of the summer, fall, winter, and spring seasons. When you get four full moons in a season instead of three, the third full moon is the blue moon. You get 12 full moons in one calendar year normally, so having 13 full moons in one calendar year is when you get a blue moon, regardless of what type it is. Blue moon can also just refer to a moon that appears more bluish, but that's not the usual definition of it. So, um, just to give you some dates, by the more recent definition, a blue moon, that's the second full moon in a single calendar month, is going to happen in January 2018. Specifically, the blue moon is going to happen on January 31st. By the definition of the third full moon in a season that contains four full moons, the next blue moon will be on May 18th, 2019. So, we've got a couple of them coming up. That's pretty cool. Alright, I hope you understand more about the way that the moon's orbit of Earth and Earth's orbit of the sun affect how we see the sun and the moon. This was kind of a back-to-the-basics episode, and I'm sorry it's so short, but if there's anything you're curious about that I brought up, you can definitely tell me, and I can revisit it. I'm not that into math, though. Uh, That's kind of the main thing that's holding me back on this episode. I'm pretty sure getting any more deeply into orbits and orbital shapes and trajectories and stuff would just evolve into equations, and I'm pretty wary of going that route with this podcast. Once again, I did not cover any of the potential episode topics that I mentioned in the last podcast. I'm building up quite a backlog of ideas, which is not a bad problem to have, in my opinion. (laughs) Cast a vote for me talking about the Voyager Golden Records, the transit of Venus, dark matter, the history of the U.S. space program and how it relates to Russia's space program, the moon landings, or Edmund Halley. You can tell me which topic sounds coolest by sending me a Tumblr ask, or you can tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. I'm on iTunes, which you probably know because it's the largest platform for downloading this podcast, but you can subscribe there. You can rate this podcast, and if you feel moved to do a review, I would absolutely love that. (laughs) I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it crisscrosses my applesauce. 
I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to crisscross your applesauce, too. The plan is to put out the next episode on October 16th, and I really hope it happens. You can check out sources, music credits, a vocab list, the episode transcript, and that list of full moon names that I mentioned at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD. Signing off.